Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Chris DeMuth, a PM at Rangeley, and with me as always is my co-host and fellow Rangeley PM, Andrew Walker. It is Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. Today we're talking about price fixing from hot chocolate in prison to chips in cell phones. Uh, to begin uh, tonight, uh, one of a couple topics we wanted to discuss, Bernie Madoff. He's been kind of in the shadows since he was dragged away in shackles. I was actually working out at Sports Club LA when his uh, caravan of police cars <laughs> and so forth dragged him away. Uh, and they went right outside uh, the door where I was working out at the time. Everything about that Madoff scandal was big. $65 billion. Decades of fraud. 150-year sentence. Uh, journalist Steve Fishman, who's somebody I've long admired, read his work and followed his journalism, has covered Madoff for years and was able to secure great access to the fraudster. Just being uh, curious, insistent, and friendly, uh, which is a great combination for eliciting information. Um, a lot of uh, Fishman's takeaway at the time was that Madoff was not this criminal mastermind, deviant freak. He was a symptom of the larger system. And all of Fishman's journalism, I think, really was seen through that lens. But Andrew, I wanted to ask you kind of um, uh, Fishman's come together uh, uh, with uh, putting out for the first time uh, a lot of the uh, audio and uh, listening to and thinking about uh, what he's come out with. What's your takeaway? Yeah, now, correct me if I'm wrong. The reason we kind of are bringing this up is there. It, he released it in a podcast form, yes. right? Which it's kind of very meta that we're a podcast, podcast on a podcast. a podcast. I was kind of trying yeah. to downplay that just a little bit. But yeah, I know. Yeah, we're, yeah. So norm, look, normally I like like uh, talking about having. Read the source material, but I will admit I have not uh, listened to the the podcast yet. But I did read the summary, and I have read a lot about Bernie Madoff. I think you've listened to the podcast, so feel free to jump in. But the the real takeaway for me was there were a couple of key things I was picking up. One, there there's some really funny stuff. Like you know, he's a convicted con man. He goes into prison, and a I like he immediately gets a lot of respect with the prisoners because yeah. some of them are in there for you know stealing a fifty thousand dollar car with a gun, and they're like, how much did you steal? He's like, Billions. And they, it just boggles they mind, their mind. They can't believe there's so much money. One, one of the criminals was saying, you know, Jesse James only stole thousands. This guy stole billions. You know, so something that in terms of social uh, hierarchy is really a negative in the world is this big positive <laughs> in jail. I, hey, if you're going to steal, at least steal big, I suppose. But the, the real takeaways for me was, A, I, you mentioned it, that how it, it was so, it would have been so easy to catch him. And he mentioned several times where he was like, I thought the gig was up. Somebody from the SEC came and asked, and, like, I basically had given up I was a fraud, and they just, like, didn't press the button to un unravel it all. So one is just kind of how, how close he was and how the system kind of enabled him because of his reputation and just the laxness of the system. And then the other was almost his disdain for his role in his own fraud. You know, you read his interviews, you read some transcripts, and he really says, look, the SEC was lazy. The SEC should have caught me. Like, these hedge fund guys gave me so much money. Like, it's not my fault they gave me money and expected returns and performance on it. Just his ability to blame others versus himself were my, my two key takeaways, I think. You know, um, I knew uh, at the time that there were... Uh, agents 
that were investigating Madoff that actually dropped off resumes uh, while they were looking at the uh, at the firm. Uh, what I hadn't heard until the Fishman work was that one of them had actually speculated with the other that if he was named the head of the SEC, that one of them was hoping they'd get the chief of staff position. And that while they were investigating him, they were trying to get kind of on the in. Um, uh, th- that's all very interesting. Uh, my first one... Uh, and, and this is maybe uh, confirmatory of something I thought about when I interview uh, management teams, is that somebody being charismatic, extroverted, and likable is not uh, a big uh, defense against fraud. You know, that when you meet somebody who's nice and likable, um, it might be a mild positive or uh, more likely indicator in terms of fraud because you need to be able to keep a con going. Uh, 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 so in a, one of my favorite books about uh, fraudsters, uh, they said that charm is not something that you have. It's something that you do. And he certainly knew how to charm. And, and you know, I think that's such a great point. A lot of times we'll see – I've gotten emails from people and they'll say, hey, I think this company is great. And I'll, I'll respond and be like – Oh, you know, I'm seeing some things that don't add up here mm-hmm. or something. And one of the things, and I've heard this line several times, they'll be like, I spent an hour with the CEO and I really like him. Like, this isn't the type of guy who would do anything, you know, unethical. It's like, you spent an hour with him? Like, you you hear stories of people who've known people their whole lives and get robbed by people. And you think you can tell after an hour with the guy who, you know, people tend to get promoted because, like you're saying, they're charismatic, they're fun, they're enjoyable, people like them. And you think after an hour you can tell if this guy's defrauding you? Like, it's it could be his job to defraud you. So. That's, how they, uh, that's how they got there. I, I've always noticed... Uh, with other couples that if you have something that's more uh, 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 confined and longer term, like a sailing trip or having house guests, you learn so much more about them than you do at the length of the time of like a dinner party or a short term Mm -hmm. thing. And so uh, any kind of interview is a length of time that it's easy to maintain a facade. Uh, One thing that I find that's very important is doing work by hand, but repeatedly calling and meeting and meeting. And just so you can set a baseline so that you can really tell changes because some things are just personality tech. Some things are just somebody's character is sunny or gloomy, uh, but that you can see over time uh, if you spend more time with them. We mentioned this on a podcast, I think a year ago, but the Britney Spears story is such a great example. How Britney Spears for years, she people would ask, are you a virgin? She'd say, of course I'm a virgin. And then one time she goes on a trip to, what was it, the Bermuda <laughs> or something with uh, Justin Timberlake. And she comes back and somebody says, are you, are you a virgin? And she says, how dare you ask me that? And exactly. if you'd never heard her say, Say, yeah. say something before you say, oh, that's a natural she, she response. She didn't answer the yeah. question, but if you baseline, you'd say, she did answer the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the other takeaway I had from him uh, in his demeanor is that I think disdain is a positive indicator for fraudsters. Um, most people have some narrative that explains the evil uh, that pushes it out external to them. They're looking for something exogenous that they can say, hey, the investors were greedy, the SEC was stupid, uh, uh, that they deserved it, that, that, that they know what happened and they try to come up with some narrative that makes them not responsible and so you start denigrating all the characters around you to be people worthy of the pain that you inflicted Mm -hmm. and I think you disdain long before you admit to what you did yourself and um, I think that Madoff really sounded like he wanted to join the ranks of victims 
uh, he uh, really uh, didn't uh, have a lot of respect for any of the people around him. Um, and uh, the last thing that I, uh, oh, if you have not read uh, Harry uh, Markopoulos's book, fantastic book, especially really gets into some of the accounting issues. I think it's A plus, highly recommended. Um, and the other last thing I wanted to ask about how he's doing in prison related to the hierarchy, yep, social hierarchy, yep. kind of opposite here, is he's cornered the market for Swiss Miss. Let, let me just, Harry Markopoulos is the man who, as early as 2000, I believe, he sent he sent in a lot of information to the SEC on uh, Bernie Madoff and said yep. he's a fraud. And his book, No One Would Listen, says no one would listen that he was saying he's a fraud. But yeah, I love the, the Swiss, you, you want to say something? I, I would just Harry throw Markopoulos? out about Harry. I think he, in a lot of ways, is almost the inverse of Madoff. He is not charismatic. Uh, he is somebody who had the facts. He's, I would say, extremely honest, uh, extremely fact-driven, internally consistent, but doesn't charm people at all. If he could have charmed people a little bit, he would have charmed the SEC. And listening. He says that people would never listen who I absolutely know listen to you when you have things to say. Uh, I think nobody listened to him based on the way he presented himself. Yeah, yeah. He might have had a little bit of like boy who cried wolf and in a uncharismatic way and everybody, you know, Bernie Madoff charismatic. He wasn't belligerent, blunting them with uh, that. But anyway, let's turn to the Swiss Miss because yes. I think it's great. So, you know, one of the things is they're talking about Bernie Madoff in prison and they say like, he kind of fits in prison, and we already mentioned how a lot of the prisoners respect him. Uh, I thought it was funny some of the prisoners were coming up to him for investment advice, ignoring the fact that he was a con man and he hadn't invested in years or maybe even decades. But uh, they also talk about how he corners the market for Swiss Miss and gets every packet of hot chocolate in the prison and then ends up selling them all for a profit in the prison yard. And I just love the quote. He... he Got a monopoly on the hot chocolate market. Like, oh, just incredible stuff there. I love it. Um, well, I think that was the topic I wanted to talk about on Mr. Madoff. Yeah, perfect But there's topic. another issue of price fixing or alleged price fixing at this point. Just a few days before the end of his administration, the Obama FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is filing a huge antitrust suit against Qualcomm, alleging that they use anti-competitive practices to protect a monopoly in baseband processors, processors for mobile phones. Uh, Apple and Samsung rely on these processors. There are alternatives, but especially for the high-end ones, Qualcomm has a huge amount of market and gets royalty payments for a lot of their technology. Um, I would say that what's interesting about this to me is that Qualcomm rejects the entire thesis of the complaint. They plan to fight back hard. So does the FTC's one Republican commissioner. The rump FTC is down to three uh, ladies, uh, two Democrats, one Republican. And the Republican will be running the commission uh, on an acting basis within four weeks. And what's interesting about that is uh, uh, this is uh, Commissioner um, Olhausen. Uh, she said that this is a wrong case. It's political. It's bad economics. They shouldn't be doing it. The case is wrong. The timing's wrong. Uh, and uh, this is a very interesting one. They're sort of carrying water for Apple. Apple doesn't like the prices they're getting. Uh, and so this is kind of a private sector beef that is quite indicative of what things are like in the competitive markets. Uh, people uh, hemming and hawing about the prices. Uh, but the government's swooped in to attack. And uh, so I guess the first question is, Andrew, what do you think of the timing and circumstances of this suit? Yeah, so look, this is, this is not necessarily my area of expertise. I think you know a lot more about this, so I'll turn it over to you in a second. But the two, you already mentioned how the Republican commissioner who is going to be in charge and the only person who will be there in 
four days uh, objected to this. So it's just very strange timing for the FTC to drop it literally when the next administration will be uh, in charge of it. Like we've mentioned many times how we think Warren Buffett might be trying to tie up capital to mm-hmm. kind of tie his successor's hand from being able to allocate capital too much. It would almost be like if Warren Buffett was doing that, except he knew his successor had a complete aversion to railroad companies. Mm-hmm. And the day before Warren Buffett died, he went out and said, oh, by the way, I just put all of our capital into railroad companies and something that you can't reverse because my understanding is this suit now that it's been brought is it's not impossible to reverse but it's difficult for them to kind of drop the suit easily so it's very strange in that aspect and then i'll turn it over to you one second the other thing that i thought was interesting was reading some background here south korea and china had both fined qualcomm for something similar to this and i believe the obama administration had actually put some pressure on china saying like hey, don't go too hard on Qualcomm because they were saying it sets a bad precedent for kind of American patents and American intellectual property. So I thought that background was very interesting. Again, I don't know a ton about it, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm an IP zealot. I think that this is very important. But at the same time, uh, I would say that in many ways, Qualcomm is a uh, is an unpopular company. It's a whipping boy. Uh, it's kind of the least defensive of uh, government contractors. It is the least Silicon Valley e of the California tech companies. They're kind of the odd men out socially with a lot of companies. They have their detractors. Uh, they lack political cover, and so right now they have South Koreans and Europeans and Americans all kind of nitpicking against them. Uh, they frequently seem to find themselves in this situation. Um, the, the schedule here, though, is very odd. Uh, the circumstances in the government kind of goes against normal uh, decorum and behavior for a departing administration. Uh, you know, if you had a British no-confidence system, you'd have one party kind of leaving the scene and the other coming in with the election. In this case, the schedule is a strange one. Um, the new acting uh, chairman... Uh, you know, they could settle the suit, they could withdraw the suit, they could push it forward, but it's one where the political leadership doesn't believe. Uh, the political leadership circa, uh, you know, uh, it's actually going to be, uh, it's going to be a little bit later, it's going to be uh, February uh, 10th, uh, is going to uh, no longer believe in the case. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Um, what is the impact going to be with Qualcomm's big acquisition of NXP, I wonder? Yeah, so... You know, I don't know if this will directly affect the NXP uh, acquisition, but the NXP acquisition is one I'm very interested in. Uh, You know, we followed it. I think we both have a position in it, which we'll have to disclose. But I'm so interested in it because it it seems to me, uh, in all cases, Qualcomm did a fantastic job with the NXP uh, acquisition. I think so. so. uh, Look, they're they're buying uh, NXPI in a massive almost $50 billion deal. They're buying NXPI for about 13 times EBITDA, where peer transactions, that's at the very low end. Most peer transactions have been at about 17 uh, times. Qualcomm's uh, stock gained about 10% all in from the day it started getting rumored that they were going to buy them to when they bought them. And I think the really interesting thing is we kept hearing they're buying NXPI for $120 per share. And we kept hearing the bid axe was kind of Qualcomm wanted to pay, or sorry, they're buying them for 110 and we kept hearing the bid ask was Qualcomm wanted to pay 110, NXPI wanted 120, and they ended up at 110. And uh, you know, Qualcomm stock shot up three or four percent on the day. Uh, the that difference was actually about three billion dollars, and Qualcomm actually added about three billion dollars of market cap when they announced the 110 deal. So clearly, Qualcomm managed to take all the value in that negotiations for them, and it shows 
great negotiating leverage on their part. Maybe shows NXPI wasn't that attractive to other strategic bidders like uh, Texas Instruments or or Intel. But again, great deal, uh, great negotiations on them. I don't think this FTC charge will impact the deal, but it, the deal, uh, you know, it, it's a very widespread. A lot of people think this is going to get blocked. It trades at about $98 for a $110 deal. I think it's a around 13% annualized return if you buy it today and the deal closes by year end. So very interesting. With, um, yeah, no, I think the deal dynamics were uh, were quite positive for the buyer uh, in this case. It's kind of a perpetual motion machine. If you can increase your market cap by a dollar for every dollar something you buy, you can keep you can keep deals going like that for some time. Look, I, I heard some analysts who were looking at this deal when the rumors broke and they were like, 120 is way too cheap. They were yeah. saying 135, 150, 170. Okay. And even up to then, they thought it would still be a good deal for Qualcomm. So I, I think Qualcomm got a fantastic deal here. And I, it will be interesting to see if the FTC affects them, if yeah. they can get this through regulators because Donald Trump, he might not like big $50 billion deals. The um, and, and the companies in fine since the deal was announced. Uh, if Qualcomm really faltered, and I don't see that they would, but if they had a problem, there's also some shot that uh, both TI and Intel could look at the stock reaction that Qualcomm had, looked at it and, and see an opening. This deal, I, I believe the deal probably will get done, but it'll take the better part of this year. So those other two potential suitors have a little time to take a peek. Absolutely true. And the, the other thing to think is if the deal breaks, I believe... Uh, Qualcomm will have to pay NXPI about a $2 billion breakup fee. So Texas Instruments and Intel might be looking at NXPI and saying, hey, the stock market's gone up 20% since then, and NXP has an extra $2 billion on their balance sheet. Now might be a really good time to take a look at them. So that'll be interesting. Thank you very much uh, for thoughts on price fixing. I think, was that about at the time that we had Yeah, that, that's perfect time. Um, so un- unlike unlike uh, Prison Yard, uh, Swiss Miss, and uh, cell phone uh, chips, you have a lot of choices in which podcast you listen. So thank you for listening uh, to us. Please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. And for full disclosure, I am quite long NXPI. I'm long NXPI as well. And I guess we can give a little bit of a preview of our Friday podcast. It's Donald Trump's inauguration. So we'll be uh, talking about our favorite topic on the podcast recently, some Donald Trump stuff, maybe a little bit about him and the Mexican peso. Who knows? But it'll be interesting. Excellent. All right. Talk to you all then. Thanks.